Network. Connected. MIDI session. Running. MIDI show control. Confirmed. DMX interface. Connected. Light control. Confirmed. Ethernet. Active. Audio interface. Active and engaged. Arduino unit. In range. Bluetooth remote pair. Connected. OSC IP. Active. We're ready. Start the queue. Featuring Andy Dolph, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, Alex Sparks, and Mark Neiser. It's the queue. Welcome to the queue, everybody. We have Andy Dolph with us, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, and a special guest, Alexander Taylor. And he'll be joining us today for our interview with Dave Smith so that we can pry into the deep depths of the inventor of MIDI. The first thing that I really wanted to cover is something that Rich Walsh came up with on the forums after I begged for some help on a massive lighting to sound project I'm working on. I built a wireless Boogang, which is a flow prop with serial commands, and I wanted it to be the lights on the LED to change perfectly with the music, and I just had hundreds of cues on there, and it was very frustrating working on the post-weight and pre-weight times. And Rich Walsh chimed in with this idea of using a DVAMP cue inside a slice of an audio file where you can just drag those along. And there is one preference you have to do. Does anybody, Andy, is it you, you have to say trigger next cue at end of slice or yeah, something? Yeah, fire, fire next cue at end of current slice. And you can literally slide these little slices around to dial in your audio perfectly to match your, vid- your lighting cues or whatever cues you decide. Like in my case, I'm also sending a serial command to my Boogang to tell it to change as well as the lights in the venue. I was at a cruise ship recently working with a production manager there who was putting in a new production show, and he was just saying how he never uses QLab. And I said, why? And he said, because of the lighting where he couldn't dial it in properly. And so by the end of the week, he was using QLab because of this change. How do you keep firing the DVAMP? You just have one DVAMP that you fire after every slice i do it in sequence i think you could also just call it as well or call it you could have a list of cues on a separate cue list and just loop it back over to that i just do it in sequence so i have a devamp cue the lighting cue a devamp cue the lighting cue a devamp cue the lighting cue but no timing at all so your fire and next cue is like a group with a lighting cue and the next devamp but they're all just in one list together and you can just close the group out and hide the whole thing um, but to be able to move it and adjust it just in real time, because if you messed up before, you changed one wait time, all the other stuff. Well, unless up. you're in a fire all simultaneously group. Hmm. Maybe that would have saved me a year's work. <laughs> yeah, so that that's how I've always done it. I put the audio cue for the playback and everything that fires in sync with that audio cue in one fire all children simultaneously group. And then I set individual pre-weights from the beginning of the track right? for each of the cues huh. that comes after. So then I can adjust them all independently of each other. And even if I end up with them wow. not physically in the right order in the cue list, it doesn't matter because they just fire when the, pre- the pre-weights go. Right. So you're building, yeah. you build an absolute rather than a relative timeline. So all your pre-weights are only relative to the start of the audio file, not to each other. Yeah, I did the same thing. And I love that we're all old school by saying fire old children simultaneous, which new schools start. Because my favorite was fire child randomly or fire random child. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But now it's start. At least it wasn't execute, you know. (laughs) True. I find the kind of pervasive firearms metaphor both slightly off-putting but also very useful as a way of explaining how things work. So it's like a weapon. If it's not armed, it won't fire. You know, you can arm it, you can disarm it. It has a target. That's the thing it's pointing at. You load it and you arm it. It actually plays out really well as a metaphor. Well, maybe we can lobby for QLab 4 to have more of a green naming protocol or something, you know, like endangered species. I mean, it, dolphin. it well, I mean, it also fits with Pyroland where, you know, fire is the traditional go command so although i hope no right. one is firing pyro from qlab i really really hope no one is firing yeah. pyro from qlab yeah i can't come on it's, it's it's a little bit what? of a waste because there's in the mscq there's that menu that has all the fun stuff like all the atmospherics and and i think it lists fireworks and all those yeah, things yeah but pyro yeah they i've been searching for someone that actually uses it <laughs> i think i want to see it in action i do fire a a uh, arm launcher which can, has compressed air in it, so and that could take out your eyeball. 
if you put your face right over it. But I do have a little sticker on it that says... What you know, kind of uh, safety precautions do you have in there? A sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Great! <laughs> and I'm the only person on stage, so that's two safety protocols. Me, I'm not going to sue myself, and two, I have a sticker. You have some Don't kind of... Don't stand here is what the sticker You might says. want to think about having like a, a, a foot switch or something that's a, uh, an enable button for it. That's a good idea. So like it'll only, yeah. only fire if you have one foot on the switch or something. Hmm. Well, before it does play, it does have a long build-up song that plays right before it. So if I hear that, I know that the arm's going to be blasting across the stage any minute. So that's good good built-in warning. I crossed 3,000 cues, by the way, uh, yesterday in my, Congratulations. Uh, in hey, my show. Congratulations. So. For a one-hour show, 3,000 cues? 90 uh, minutes. 90 minutes. That's everything yep all the shenanigans but the, all the new boogang stuff is adding a ton of data so to what it. am i the only one who doesn't know what's the boogang oh it's it's a flow prop that i've been into it looks like a letter c so it's a giant s and i they sell them online where you can buy one with leds in it but it's so lame you literally push a remote and you buy this pre-made led strip from adafruit and just shove it into a plastic body and then you push the remote off stage and it blew red green and some idiot is over there just pushing it and that just seems so stupid and i wanted to make i'm really into this prop so i, was, I wanted it to be note to note to the song yeah of course so i built a i 3d printed the bodies and i have 120 leds in each bugang magnetic connectors where they join together and so to turn it on you just open the c's out into an s and the magnetic connectors close the circuit and turn on the xb and the arduino and close the battery. And then we just send a serial command from a cool term from QLab. And we using those slice commands, perfectly kick-ass tracking and individual lights coming on with the music. And I mean, it took me a week to program it to make it to this one five-minute song. But it, I'm going to post a video shortly. Uh, I'm just waiting for one more part to be 3D printed. Sounds exciting. It's going to be, I think it's going to be this, amazing line of interactive uh, juggling flow props that are because for now now suddenly the music controls the leds it's not just some stone dude in the wings you know so, you know what would be anyway. neat would be to do something with a live pianist playing a midi keyboard and somehow map the notes i've on thought the about keyboard. doing something like that yeah where were they mapped to so that depending yeah well or something that controls the what the lights do so that the so mm -hmm. that you're working with the prop live and the pianist is playing live mm -hmm. and what the pianist is doing is controlling how the lights happen uh, yeah that would be cool you could have each individual key could have its own little single light unit up yeah. as well i guess that yeah yeah it's you have 88 leds in, in your little prop. i have 100 and uh 130 in each one so 260 Dave Smith, welcome to the Q Podcast. You are the father of MIDI, according to Wikipedia. That's a pretty big moniker to carry. How does that feel? Uh, well, you know, it's one of those things you don't think about every day, especially after the first 32, 33 years. It's, it's fun to reflect on it and see how well it's done over the years. It, it's just one thing that I did a long time ago. And, you know, I'm more interested in designing instruments than worried about what MIDI does or has done or do you realize the beast that you've created, that all these unauthorized uses that we're all using this for? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that was all I did. What was there before that? The quick history uh, is that, uh, you know, the Prophet 5 in 1978 was the first uh, musical instrument with a microprocessor in it. And within a couple of years, other companies were also making similar products that also had microprocessors. And, you know, once you have a microprocessor and a musical instrument, it becomes really obvious that it's real easy to connect to other instruments because uh, it's all digital. So all of us started doing that. At Sequential, we had a really high-speed serial interface, somewhat similar to MIDI, but a lot faster. And so we, our products could talk to each other. We made a little polyphonic sequencer and remote keyboards, and everything connected just well. Uh, but at the same time, Roland was doing the same thing, and uh, so was Yamaha, and so was Oberheim. And uh, at some point, 
became really obvious that it was kind of silly that none of these things could communicate to each other. Um, and we realized that this, the whole market was not going to go anywhere unless that was solved. So that's, that's kind of how it all came about. What was the first MIDI message that you sent? Well, I guess the first one that was sent between companies, which is easier to document, would, be, would have been at the NAM show in 1983 when we connected a Prophet 600, which we had been shipping for about a month, to a uh, Jupiter 6 from Roland. They, uh, the Roland people just brought it over to our booth at the trade show, and we connected it, and uh, yes, I think I played a few notes on one, and it played on the other. Wow. So that, that's and, separate, obviously, from what we all were doing in our own labs, building it and testing it and getting it running, of course. Was it originally a quarter-inch pin? No, it was always the five-pin DIN. What are we doing with the other pins? I don't really... I'm only... When I use MIDI show control stuff, I only use three Yeah, pins. everybody only uses three. Uh, I forget what the thought was. It might have been just to give us an out if we wanted to do more in the future, uh, you know, like conceivably a uh, reverse channel or uh, additional, uh, almost anything, but it just never happened. Um, so it just it's always been three, so it doesn't need to be five. Dave, when MIDI was first released, uh, you made it available for no licensing fee, is that right? That is correct. And there are a few reasons. Uh, first of all, there were actually five companies that worked together to develop the actual specification uh, even though two companies, uh, Sequential Circuits and Roland, did pretty much all the work. Uh, so first of all, no one person owned it. You know, it's nice. It's a nice story to say I'm not a billionaire because I didn't own MIDI and gave it away free. But, it, you know, it was not just me. Uh, but the main reason we didn't charge anything was we wanted to make sure that everybody used it uh, and it became 100% implemented. So the easiest way to do that was to give it away for free. And it worked. You were just on the cover of Forbes magazine, I believe, discussing the exact moniker that you're the richest poor guy in America. <laughs> yeah, and again, that's it, it makes a great story, and I suppose it's partially somewhat true. I mean, I used to say that I'd be happy with a, a nickel per jack, and then it was a penny, and then it was a penny per jack, and now you know I had a hundredth of a penny per jack or per uh, instance. Uh, yeah, that would have been really nice. But uh, you know, it, it's it's okay. It's well, we'll all send you that our portion right after the podcast is finished. What were the other acronyms discussed besides MIDI? Well, there were only three when I first. Uh, made a proposal for what became MIDI. I called it the Universal Synthesizer Interface, or USI. And that was when I gave a paper in 1981 at the uh, AES convention in New York in October. Uh, and that was mostly just kind of a... We, we actually wrote up a specification and we just presented it as a possible solution, but it was more just a call to arms to get people uh, involved to make something. Uh, it stayed USI for most of, for half of 1982, and then towards the end of 82, I remember uh, Kakahashi-san, the, uh, then the founder of Roland, president of Roland at the time, visited us at, at Sequential Circuits, and he said that the Japanese companies were thinking of a, something called UMII, the Universal Musical Instrument Interface. Which made sense because, music, you know, we want to limit it to just synthesizers. Musical instruments is more um, widespread. Uh, and it would be pronounced Yumi. And they thought that was kind of cute because it meant you and me were connecting. <laughs> and during that meeting, we just kind of, well, you know, I don't really like the way that sounds. And somehow, again, since I like the musical interface part of it, I just... MIDI just showed up in my head, musical instrument, digital interface, which is exactly what it was. And we had had some input from some lawyers from one of the other companies saying that you shouldn't call it universal because there'll be antitrust and this and that, and we'll get in trouble. So if you take out the universal and call it what it was, it ended up being MIDI. And, I, and uh, Kakashi said, sure. And so it became MIDI. 
Wow. Yeah, you have some alien race come down and start screaming at you because they have the, a better version. <laughs> well, of course, that's what happened. Everybody was complaining about maybe not being good enough, but obviously it was. What was the complaint? Well, some people thought it was too simple. You know, all the people who didn't want to get involved because they wanted things that ran way too fast and parallel and did everything and, you know, missing the point that it had to be cheap to implement and easy to implement and... You know, you only want to cover what, if you could hit 95% of the market, you're doing pretty well. The other complaint was that it was too slow, but that was actually not MIDI. It was the instruments at the time. All of our microprocessors were overtaxed, so they just couldn't keep up with MIDI. It wasn't the other way around. So so, there were some particularly bad implementations where, you know, you hit a note and you know, 20 milliseconds later, would play on the other keyboard. But, but again, that wasn't MIDI. That was the implementation of the instrument. I think that's called the delay effect. I don't know if you heard of that. but uh. Yeah, well, the MIDI <laughs> delay, yeah, which didn't exist then because right. of the, uh, Other things people say, oh, what this is not enough resolution and controllers, and even that, there's two ways around that. One, a lot of people didn't filter MIDI input to their instruments, which you have to do because uh, that smooths it out. And the other speed issues and uh, resolution, with, uh, you have something called SysX and MIDI. And with SysX, you can do anything you want. And everybody always forgets that. If you want something much fancier, go ahead and put it in SysX. You can do whatever you want. Uh, and now that MIDI has been over USB for a long time, uh, it really, uh, there's no speed issues at all. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to do something fancy, if you want 30-bit resolution at something, well, run it over USB, put it in the SysX, and go crazy. Well, you say that no one uses SysX, but for us, this is our bare-to-arms. We always love system-exclusive messages and talk about them all the time. So, Well, that, that's the whole point. And so many people miss that. The whole idea of SysX was go crazy, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. The number one question I get when I teach MIDI is why 127? And it was kind of a clever thing. I think Roland actually came up with it. Uh, one of the problems with a serial interface, especially one that could be disconnected, is you always have to know where you are if you plug in something. Uh, and if you're in the middle of a message, you have to know what, what are commands and what are data. So a really simple, elegant way to do that is to use commands, uh, have commands always have the highest order bit set. And if you do that, it's really easy to sync up and you never get lost and you always know when a new command is coming in. The only downside of that, it means that data bytes can only be seven bits. Seven bits is plenty for 99.9% of what you do. And if you want to do more, there's SysX. Or or you could do, there's double precision that's actually defined in uh, MIDI where you could do 14 bits easily enough. But you just just can't do 8 without doing 14. So it was a very elegant way of handling commands that solved all kinds of problems and made the whole system very simple and uh, easy to recover and just significantly more robust. How does 7 relate to 127? Uh, 7 bits, the maximum uh, number you can get is 0 to 127. That's just binary to uh, integer arithmetic, uh, binary to decimal arithmetic. 7 bits is 127, 8 bits is zero to two fifty five. Right. So if your if your message is in binary and you're using eight bits, you have eight place values. You have to understand binary uh, arithmetic for this to make sense. Uh, it's obviously something we do all the time when we're programming because all programming is based on bytes, which are eight bits. And- you know this this conversation makes me wonder how DMX, the lighting protocol, deals with this because DMX is zero to two fifty five but is often called uh, an 8-bit protocol. So I guess they're not reserving that 8th bit. Because there's no command. They must have a completely different protocol where if there's a different way of syncing up between instruments, you, you can get by doing everything in 8 bits. It just, it just depends on the protocol. Because if, if, if you think about DMX is an incredibly simple thing that you always know what it's going to do. It's giving you a sequence of 
channel number value, channel number value, one through five twelve, over and over again. Um, so it's really easy to figure out where you are in that sequence when you plug something into it. Whereas with MIDI, because of the range of possible things that could be transiting the wire, it needed they needed that signaling bit in order to say this is a command. Yeah. Pretty much. Did, did that make sense? Yeah. So how did you guys decide what electronic structure to use for this in terms of, particularly I'm thinking about one of the reasons I think MIDI lasted as long as it did is that it's based on a current loop. So it's just such an incredibly robust physical interface. And I'm, I'm wondering sort of what the process to come to that was. This is a long time ago. Everybody has always dealt with ground loops between products and between mixers and systems. Ground loops are always obnoxious and hard to deal with sometimes. And since this is one of the first times uh, digital was getting introduced along with analog pass, the ground loop potential was that much worse. So having optically isolated circuit for MIDI completely eliminates any possibility of having a ground loop when you plug in a MIDI cable. Otherwise, you'd have a, a ground going from your instrument to your mixer, and then you'd have another ground that's digital going between your instruments, which then has its own ground going to a mixer, and it, it'd just be a mess. So that was one of the more elegant things about MIDI, is just never, ever any ground loops. And is that to save grounding wire? Is that why people do that? No, it's it's a way of stopping hum. It's It stops electrical interference. Okay. Yeah, there is no direct connection between the two instruments electrically. No wire from one touches a wire and the other. The only the circuit just goes through an LED and back, so there's there's nothing connecting the two. Mm-hmm. And the LED is what also prevents the current from going backwards. Is that true? Uh, yes. What are the the limits? Is there an upper limit of MIDI? If you take SysX into account, there's no limits of anything, but there are limits of how many bits you could normally use and how many channels. I mean, there's only 16 channels. Though I suppose it's probably some way of doing something under SysX if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's there's limits to anything at some point. When you discuss the grounding issue, I did have a guy blow up a hog lighting board because we were patching using a XLR cable to get MIDI show control into the lighting board, and he accidentally ran it through a headphone um, intercom jack, and uh, you just smelled smoke coming out of the back of the back of the hog and that was the end of it well ground loops have always been a problem usually more in older buildings old stages that sort of thing where actually it's more than just causing hum it kills you if you're not careful there have been some famous musicians that have gone through that over the years what are some weird uses that you've you've found and appreciated for MIDI? Well, one of the funny things that happened very early on is the whole academic community really roundly trashed MIDI. I think they were hurt because we didn't ask them what we should do. And, of course, they're always pushing the envelope and want to do strange things. And, you know, so they, they just thought it was inadequate and it was too slow and it was really, really stupid and wrote all these scholarly articles saying so. But after two or three years, a strange thing happened. Uh, a, a number of people in the academic community started realizing all the cool stuff they could do with an interface that already existed. And you've probably seen a lot of these weird controllers people have built. You know, there are mini suits where you slap yourself in different ways to trigger things. There are uh, mini, yeah, uh, mini dance things where people step on things during a dance to trigger music. Uh, all kinds of interactive MIDI things. Uh, MIDI gloves have been made of different types. Um, and this is all by the people who you know, were complaining about why MIDI, all the things that were wrong with MIDI until they stood, uh, you know, stood back a couple feet and realized, oh, <laughs> we could do a lot of cool stuff with that. Yeah, that's what I use MIDI for, interactive art. Yeah, exactly. And I love it for it. I use it all the time daily. So thank you. <laughs> Yep, in the theater world, we use it to give stage managers and operators control over all sorts of equipment that they would otherwise have to run separately and individually. So Yeah, it's especially great when your board op can't hit go for some reason, listening, air gap. And then um, I had over 120 cues, and we midied almost all of them, but 20 because the board op could handle 20 cues. 
and the rest are triggered by lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of your work is, is in designing musical instruments, is that correct? I'm an instrument designer. That's what I've always done. That's what I like to do. And like, that's what I said earlier. MIDI was just something that sort of happened on the way. But, uh, you know, I was designing instruments in the 70s and 80s and doing it again now. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to be able to start with nothing and end up with a new musical instrument that nobody's seen before. Were played before. It's uh, very. Uh, it's a pretty cool gig. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your instruments. Uh, I'm I'm interested in how did you get into designing musical instruments and how did the first profit happen? Uh, well, the quick story is I have a technical background. I graduated from Cal Berkeley with a degree in electrical engineering and computer science. And I have always been a musician, you know, amateur only, but, you know, playing guitar in bands in college, that sort of thing. Always playing keyboards a little bit at home. Uh, so when Synths first came out, uh, they looked interesting. Somebody told me this store nearby had, had a synthesizer, and this was like 1972. So I went to go check it out, and it turned out to be a mini-mode. And I had no idea how it worked, but I just, it looked too cool, and I decided I had to have it. So I bought it, and that's kind of what got me started. I started building accessories for it for my own use and then started selling some of those accessories. And, uh, you know, sequential circuits was started in 1974, and by 77 I decided I wanted to quit my day job and design a real synth. What was your day job? Uh, I was working in different places in the Silicon Valley as a, uh, a software firmware engineer, you know, a, different projects, microprocessor-based stuff. I see here that you won a technical Grammy in 2013. Did you get to do an acceptance speech with Iku Toro? I did. He's pretty old. He's in his 80s and not in great health, so he actually wasn't able to come. Uh, But his son did and gave uh, a speech for him, so that worked out. But yeah, we both gave speeches. They they have a thing uh, the night before the the regular Grammys for uh, kind of all the special merit awards so a bunch of people you know they give the technical awards and lifetime achievement awards and all those kind of things so it's kind of fun that's incredible yeah i had a a couple questions um uh dave in the show control world uh where we all come from uh midi seems to be sort of undergoing a very slow process of being phased out to be replaced by osc open sound control um a, a very, very slow process. Uh, but I don't know that OSC is really taking off at all within the music industry itself. MIDI still seems to be the industry standard. So I was just kind of wondering if you have uh, any thoughts. What's your point of view on uh, the state of MIDI as an industry standard in the music industry now and going into the future? Well, what it's going to take for something else to be adopted is for the main five, six seven companies to agree on something and it's just like, which is how it happened the first time the right five companies decided to do it so everybody else was forced to do it but you know for example my company i have act- absolutely no reason to spend a lot of our limited development time uh implementing osd because nobody else does it you know and in general and it's a whole lot of development work that i don't want to have to do and MIDI for you know normal keyboard use does what 90% of the people need. Uh, So it's just too much work. But if someday somebody comes up with an interface that everybody decides to implement and it really works well and it's not that hard, then sure, we probably put it in our instruments too. But other than that happening, and it hasn't happened in 30 years, uh, it's hard to predict. Yeah, because as far as I can tell, MIDI, you know, it works. It does the job. Um, And I, I... you know, I don't see much of a reason uh, why it, it would be replaced by anything else anytime soon. And uh, it seems like uh, you're kind of confirming that, which is really interesting that it's it's had this longevity and it uh, it worked at the beginning and it still works and it's still the standard. Because uh, there, are, there are very few things in the computer world that last that long, I think. Yeah. Very few things in anything. Mm-hmm. Why, why OSC? Why does OSC exist? Uh, well, there's, there's already two or three or four things that come up every once in a while that people have been trying to convince the rest of the world to adopt. And that's OSC is one. 
There was one column that was a copper land. There's uh, two or three others. I, I don't pay much attention to them, but they're out there and they've been out there and they're trying to get people to adopt them and people in generally generally aren't. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to have to find out because that's going to drive me crazy. Well, they probably have a website somewhere that will tell you how cool it is. I, uh, I tried to load their website this morning and it's it's not working, so... <laughs> uh, okay. No comment from me. Uh, I used a MIDI command, actually, and was able to bring it up. <laughs> I, I just want to say, again, Dave, thank you. Thank you for uh, creating this tool and giving it away to the world. Uh, we, all of us, would not be able to do a lot of what we do without MIDI. So, thank you. Yeah. Yes. If we could give you a award that would be even close to getting a Grammy, we would gladly do it. But uh, well, the, the Grammy we'll was sim- in lieu of cash. <laughs> well, I have already sent you my tenth of a cent um, through. I used a Bitcoin for it. There's a ten dollar charge to process it, but it was more the idea than the money. Uh, maybe I should do that kind of like a Wikipedia thing, and just uh, once a year have everybody uh, send me just on music principle. I've got one last question. Do you still play yourself? Do you still make music? Not in any serious sense. I mean, I'm always playing around with our instruments. When when you're designing a new instrument, of course, there's a lot of testing involved. And that always turns into a lot of playing. Uh, in fact, that's one of the ways you decide to have a good product coming up when you're, you're testing a new feature and all of a sudden you realize you lost two hours because you were playing with the instrument and got carried away instead of just testing. So, um, yeah, that, that's the kind of playing I do. I, I, I haven't done anything serious in quite a while. Well, your stuff looks absolutely amazing, and I'm very excited to poke around on the website and see if I can come up with some cash and play with one of your beautiful instruments. Well, that, that's the way, uh, that's the payback, is just uh, people should buy my instruments, and that makes me happy. Well, Dave Smith, you're a mentor to many of us. You may not really understand how important that is, to the tools that you've created. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. It was fun. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. Thanks for joining thank us. Thank you for the gift of MIDI. What, how, when, where, why? FAQ the Q. You've got questions. We've got long and detailed technical answers. Working in a theater setting, doing projections with QLab. Let's say I have a projector that's 300 feet away from the computer. I need to get it a 1080p, 60 frames per second, digital video signal. What would you say is the single most reliable way to do that? Probably SDI at this stage of the game. Okay, that's heartening because that's kind of what I've been thinking. And maybe I just don't have the right equipment to make it work. Oh, what are you using? I, I got these converters Where? from B&H. They're HDMI to SDI converters. I did a little test out of my laptop, HDMI to SDI, and it looked terrible. Really? The sides were cut off. The image was too big. It was fuzzy. It was vibrating. So thin lines were appearing and disappearing. What monitor were you using? It's a nice newish HD computer monitor. Yeah, I've found that monitors can a lot of times not deal with HDMI correctly. So you'll put in a signal to them and it'll be all wacky. For instance, I have a Blackmagic ATEM switcher at work that I use that I got a Acer 23-inch monitor or whatever for. It does not work with some HDMI outputs, but it works fine with others. So it works fine with the output from the switcher, but I think it didn't work with one of the outputs of the DAC boxes. So it, it, some things do some wacky things. And you're saying with HDMI signals or with per se or so only with HDMI that's from an SDI signal? This is a straight HDMI signal I was going, going into the box. HDMI monitors, I mean, they have done some wacky things. I generally try to stay away from HDMI as much as I can because it has other problems that I really don't right, like. Right, absolutely. I would love to stay away from HDMI entirely. Yeah. I mean, However, the, the, you need it somewhere in the chain to get out mm, of the Mac unless not, you're using a, a Blackmagic type right. interface thing. And that's what I end up doing. And in my portable video rack, I actually have two Mac minis in there. One of them has two Ultra Studio mini monitors out of it, which feed lower thirds and graphics and stuff like that. And then I have 
the HDMI out of each Mac Mini going into the DataVideo DAC 70s just so I can see what's going on on the Mac screen. So that's the control system for QLab on one of them and other stuff on the other. Then it feeds all the show stuff out of the Blackmagic boxes, which I know the QLab people and other people don't like. But it- I was going to ask about that because I've never tried the mini monitors. I asked about them on the QLab forums. People said, be really wary of them. They introduce a lot of latency, like three plus frames of latency. So what I do with mine is I have it outputting the a lower third of the what the current show is, and just a clock so people can know what time it is because they like to see, okay, they're talking about the fields in this part of the meeting, so we'll go to that time code, whatever. I refresh that every quarter second. So a couple frames of latency, I don't right. really... I have not seen enough appreciable latency that it has made me not want to do it. I don't go and do synchronized stuff on crazy levels, but I it doesn't bother me, and I'm pretty crazy. I get much more latency out of HDMI over IP solutions or even SDI over IP. I found that with the Blackmagic Ultra Studio boxes, I don't have problems. Like I would have a problem where I would VNC into these machines a lot. Another thing don't tell figure 53 about. It would cause QLab to hang the computer. So I would be using it with the its internal HDMI output and then going from mini display port to a DAC70 and I would connect to it, and everything would be incredibly sluggish until I escaped out of QLab. And then it was fine. I went back in, and it would be incredibly sluggish again. If I wasn't playing full-screen video, doing the lower thirds, it would be fine as well. Very strange. Could never get it. Interesting. Yeah. They might want to know about that. Well, I tried telling them about it and ended up getting blown off and, uh, you know, whatever. This solution, the mini recorder, or mini monitors, rather, work very well for me. I haven't had any problems with them other than the Thunderbolt cable dying at one point. I've had a couple people recommend rather than using the mini monitor, use one of the standards converters and do just HDMI through a Blackmagic converter into SDI. Yeah, those are two very different ways of handling it. One is, as the figure 53 guys say, it's taking the computer's internal graphics, dumping it through and out one of the computer's display ports, not necessarily display port, but HDMI, or, and then converting it to SDI rather than having the computer process it and then push it onto an interface that outputs SDI directly. I really like how that doesn't show up a dis- as a display in OS X doing it that way. I feel way. like I would really like that too. That I don't would have be- to worry about putting my mouse somewhere I'm not supposed right, to. I would or- have fewer heart attacks. Exactly. Uh, I'd literally be leaving fewer notes on the computer for the stage manager. You know, make sure you can see the mouse on the operator screen. Yep. You, you know? don't need to worry about making the screen black. You don't need to worry right. about menu Desktop bars, backgrounds, yeah. all that stuff. I did a show a few weeks ago that a guest that was running the projector, and it was just out of a Retina MacBook Pro. They had you know an HDMI connected to the projector, and QLab was full screen. They had a black background on the other display. And you could see the just one pixel width of the window. Yeah. And it was like, oh, why are they doing this? So I will go to the extent of actually rolling out my video rack and plugging in a projector with SDI in the theater just so I don't have to worry about it. Because it's, I don't know, it's a lot easier for me. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So maybe that is the way to go. And just do use what we've kind of been calling on the podcast video interfaces, even though. I think the rest of the world doesn't call them that. But interfaces like the mini monitor as opposed to broadcast converters. Right. And I mean, broadcast converters are great. I use one so I can see the control display and stuff like that. The thing about broadcast monitors, you have to be careful if you're going into a video switcher, the frame rate issues. Because I could not get the Mac Mini to output 5994. So it would do 60i or whatever, but it would yeah. not do 59.94. So I could not use a standard broadcast converter. I needed to get one of the Data Video DAC 70s, which does scaling and uh, retiming built in. Those things are amazing, if other than the dip switches. Let's just stop for a minute and talk about this box because it's a it's a super useful problem solver. The the Data Video DAC 70, and it's about the size of a direct box. And it's got a VGA in, an HDMI in, and an SDI in. And it has an SDI out and an HDMI out. And you set dip switches on it to tell it, regardless of the 
resolution and frame rate that are going in, what resolution and frame rate would you like coming out? And it's got a variety of them that you can choose. You know, you'd set it to 1080p60 or 720p60 or 1080p30. And whatever you put in, you then know what's coming out. I do projection design in a lot of like off-off-Broadway, off-Broadway situations uh, with theaters that have like massive long runs of VGA cables and nothing else. I'm sick of VGA. I don't like HDMI. You can't run it long distances. There's the HDCP issue. There's HDCP. H- what's that? High definition content protection, which which has never actually burned me because I use all my own custom created content. But still, oh no, but it can still bur- it can still burn you. It because it there are cases where if something in your chain right doesn't decide decides there should be HDCP for God right. knows why True. And isn't able to handshake. It just won't connect, even if you don't actually need it, which is one of the reasons that I tend to try that if I've got something I have to come out of HDMI, which, you know, like often when I have a presenter show up with a laptop, I do. It's one six foot HDMI cable. And then I convert it to SDI because SDI inherently doesn't support HDCP. So the computer just sees, okay, I'm connected to something that has no possibility of supporting HDCP. Then it doesn't try. I'm trying to get away from VGA because it's annoying. And dead. Yep, except except in every off-off-Broadway theater. Same here. I I never run into anything else. Occasionally HDMI or DVI, but... I've never, ever worked in a theater situation that uses SDI. Same here. I've been thinking that's the reasonable solution. Uh, I've worked at a couple places that do, uh, video over cat six. That's what I use. Cat five, cat six, whatever. I've been hearing about fiber. So when I went to the, uh, Broadway projection designer master classes, uh, a lot of the hookup diagrams that they gave out had video lines just labeled fiber. I don't know exactly what that means. Well, it's really interesting because I mean, fiber is one transport medium, Cats five or Cat six or whatever is another one. Coax is another, and it's a protocol that you put on top of that that makes a big difference. Like you can run SDI over fiber or coax. You can run um, Ethernet over fiber or Cat six. You can right other things are. It does not necessarily. You're talking about protocols and um, the transport medium, so it's really two different things there. I was lucky to to get access to all these hookup diagrams from these major Broadway shows and major video installations. But I don't know. So they're running fiber, but what signal, what uh, data protocol, I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. And then they also seem to use a lot of DVI. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is if I was going to take a guess, I would guess they were doing DVI over fiber, Um, which I don't necessarily think is a great choice, but it's been around for a long time. And it is something I have seen a lot of the big high-end multi-projector image mapping installations. When I was in Canada, I ran into a tech rehearsal and process for the the big show they do on the Parliament Building, and I talked to one of the guys. It's like 20 projectors that are spread out along 300 feet or 500 feet or something. And all of the signal distribution is is DVI over fiber. So is there a a difference then between SDI Um, over coax and sdi over fiber or over cat six or something are there pros and cons sdi over fiber or sdi over coax are as i understand it both of those are legitimately defined in the sdi spec sdi over cat six is something that somebody else is deciding how to do Okay, makes sense. I work a fair amount with the guys from CIMS in Boston who do a lot of large-scale projection for conferences and that kind of stuff. Their chief projectionist, who's been around for a very long time and who I trust a lot, has said that that their their decision at this point is they use SDI for everything up to about 200 feet. And if they've got to go more than 200 feet, they do they use copper SDI for up to 200 feet. And if they've got to go more than 200 feet, they use fiber. And he has felt that the fiber is more reliable than copper, even though it means active endpoints, than copper SDI that's more than 200 feet. 
that's a useful data point. You have to be really careful that you have the right kind of fiber for the endpoint devices you're using, both because of connector types and fiber types, which could make it not work at all, but also the degree of ruggedness that a particular fiber has, that fiber can be extremely fragile, or it can be quite rugged. Um, and you just have to make sure that you're getting the right thing for the way it's going to be handled. So that's just that's HDMI signal over fiber cable, though. So that's not that would still have all the well or most of the problems of of HDMI. Yeah, has HDMI ends to a fiber cable. What's wrong with Cat Five? Why can't I just use uh, you know a uh, go to HDMI to Cat Five and then bust bust it out HDMI on the other side or something? Mm. I mean, I have one answer, but it's probably not the right answer. It's but in my experience. Video over Cat5, I've seen a lot of frame dropping, a lot of latency. It's been kind of buggy, and I'm sure there are ways to do it right that are less buggy. When I've seen it used on shows that I've been involved with, the result has been a little bit ugly, but they're probably doing it wrong. So I'm always facing away from the video, so I can't see it. It's really important to differentiate. Are we talking about a proprietary... Ballon type solution that's video that's a video signal over a cat five or cat six cable or are we talking about something that is using an ip connection which is also carried on cat five or cat six cable in general my experience is that the decent quality video over cat five cat six solutions are fine and totally stable and look fine if they're the ones that are not trying to do it over an IP connection, that they're just using the cable, the old Ballon type solution. Once you're talking about putting video on a packet switch network, even if it's a packet switch network that's two endpoints and one cable, there's a lot more places for problems to happen. Yeah, I would agree that, you know, for old analog video, the balance solution really is great. I have not gotten HD quality video over Cat5 or Cat6 with a Ballon type solution to work reliably. Teradek makes some great IP products that I use to stream video both between locations and out to YouTube to do a live stream. The transmitter in my portable video rack, which then I connect to the building's network with a signal Ethernet cable. And I can be at any of the locations which are up to 12 miles away connected with fiber. On a private network? Yes, on the district's private network that are all connected and all switched and then go out live to a cable TV and the YouTube stream anywhere I want. Wow, and that, is that Bluetooth typically? No, it's a Teradek Cube SDI to ethernet transmitter and then a ethernet to sdi receiver that then dumps into a video switcher because i do see some bluetooth devices of theirs as well here yeah i I, that's more for local monitoring and stuff like that rather than pushing video places okay because i'm i'm definitely would love to go wireless on this just because less cable shit I mean, the problem with the the wireless solutions for hd video is that you either need a network that can deal with you know 10 or 100 gigabit networks or you the solutions are very expensive because you have to do a lot of low latency compression and when I, I would love to have a solution where i can have all my cameras set up and then push a video around and switch it wherever um but i would need to install you know, 10 or 100 gigabit switches to handle that um and that's just not realistic and they're around three thousand five thousand uh, dollars yeah i mean the the teradek bolt i think is the yep Terpa 600, that's uh, $5,000. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that thing, it, it creates its own 802.11, is it N or AC? I don't know, um, network that can push a video or you can plug in Ethernet and get higher bandwidth. I mean, it's amazing, but it's just not feasible at this point in time, maybe in another few wow. years. Very cool. All right, I'm going to take us on a slightly different video question. And Andy, you were here at this event, so maybe you can even... Uh you can help me explain better what I'm what I'm trying to get away with here. Sure. So I'm always projecting video from just typically front of house to a big psych behind me. Sometimes I've been using a super wide angle, a very short throw projector, which I travel with, which I love it. 
But a lot of times the screen is small and I got this super wide projector and I can't really move it in front of me because I want to keep it behind me. Anyway, I won't go into all the reasons. So I go into QLab and I resize it with the corner pins and it's so friggin' crunchy. How ca- I mean, aside from, and I can't go in and change the size of every single video because I got a hundred videos. How that, do you... That wouldn't help. It would still be crunchy? You're projecting at a very steep angle, right? To the N- Well, in this case, nope. In this case, it'd just be right in front of it. Just literally on the floor next to me. So you're front uh, projecting from a projector sitting on the floor dr- like center stage. Directly behind me, sure. Directly in front of me. It doesn't matter, yeah. But then I have to say I resize it from 30 feet by 20 feet down to 10 by 10. It just becomes like almost unusably crunchy. You saw how crunchy it was, Andy, at that gig. Yeah. So here's what happened in in this particular situation is that Mark was doing his show on a day when a play that was in that was running in the theater was dark and had to use the projector that was set up for the play and they didn't want to change the focus or the lensing. That projector had a 0.8 lens and was set up to cover the entire stage. And what they had for a screen was like 10 feet wide. Essentially, what ended up happening is you could only use the handful of pixels that the projector had in the middle of the stage. And so it doesn't matter how well you process the video. Because the problem mm-hmm. is... It's still only letting you use the number of pixels that are on that screen. Because the projector can only put that few hundred pixels on that screen. And mm-hmm. so it's a So physical, without having access right. to the projector to resize it, I can't win. And, and in that particular case, because they were using a fixed lens that didn't zoom, the only way to fix it would have been to have a different lens that they could put in the projector. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's really not QLab doing anything. It's just the computer failing. Projector. I mean the uh, projector. It's the, it's the limitations of the dimensions okay. of the projector okay. raster. Okay, so if I had had access to that and I could have changed, zoomed out or whatever, it would and have been And they wouldn't let you use your own projector? Um, in this case, I had just flown in from Nicaragua, so I didn't have a projector ah. with me. So I was down sure. to my lean three-bag show. That also happened to be a really wacky tight situation because of working inside a three-dimensional set (laughs) right so even with another projector it wouldn't have been there there was no easy solution and it's a theater with a super steep balcony rake so it it wouldn't have even even if i had brought a projector with me which i i could have if i had known but um there would have been no good place to put it right Thank you, guys. Wonderful. Yes, indeed. Happy holidays. Okay. All right. Thanks. Farewell. I'll close with a little quote here. The ultimate promise of technology is to make us masters of the world that we command by the push of a button. Volker Grassmuck. The Q is produced by Active Media Group in association with the Q Show cast. Music for The Q was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit theqshow.com. You can contact us at info at theqshow.com. Now go out and make something, and you too can go to 11.